Good morning. morning. Welcome to another beautiful morning where we can gather together at the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Anna Gresham. I'm a member of this congregation. And I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here today in person and online. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We're, we are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, no matter who you are or where you come from. 
Wherever you are on life's journey, you're welcome here. And you are welcome to join us as we learn, live, and love together. Um, I would like to have Kate Passnow come up and give us an announcement of something that is also in the yellow pages of your order of service. Good morning, all. So I'm really excited that we're going to have our youth group fall kickoff. It's in your yellow page. Um, and I just want to, that's today, this afternoon from 4 till 7, or excuse me, 4 till 6, here in the UU parking lot. We'll be primarily outdoors. Um, and we're going to have different kinds of games, like um, like big croquet, big Jenga, minutes winning games and whatnot. Sorry you're not all invited. It's for the youth. So this is 7th through 12th graders. Um, we have a team of adults that are leading the charge, although we're really just standing back and letting them socialize, get back together in person from a safe distance. Um, outdoors, having some pizza, having a fire pit, maybe some s'mores, um, and planning our next event um, for Halloween and also a social action project. So if you didn't hear about it yet, whoop, here it is. And if you did hear about, hear about it and forget to RSVP, um, I'll be around and otherwise you're welcome. So hope to see your youth with us today. We're currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates and check our church's newsletter. And with that, let's gather our hearts and minds together for worship and join me, please, in reciting the church's chalice lighting, which you will find the words in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now um, open your uh, teal books for opening hymn number 1008, When Our Heart Is In a Holy Place. Thank you. 
Please remain standing for our affirmation. The words are in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other in our doxology. seated. It's good to see so many of you here this morning, and greetings to those of you who are joining us online. I have your story for all ages this morning. So uh, let's see a show of hands. How many of you do the right thing all the time? <laughs> Ann Jefferson, ladies and gentlemen, she does the right thing. You got a standing ovation in the balcony, Ann. All right. So this story is for the rest of you, not for Anne. I'm not surprised. Okay. So how many of you think that experience matters or working for something really, really hard matters? Or would you like to just get something for nothing? Let me pose it this way. If, if, I, said, if I said this, you could have $1 million for nothing, or would you rather work really, really hard for 365 days for $30 million. What would you pick? Doing nothing and getting a million dollars. Let me see your hands and don't lie. You're all liars. That's what you are. You all would take the money. You know, for a fact, you would take the money. Why wouldn't you take the money? Anyway, so this is so, the story this morning is hopefully going to get at why we don't do what we know we should do. So go back in time with me to the year 1569. It was a great time. Target was just invented. Ikea was just invented. It was a wonderful time. Anyways, there's this guy named Dirk Willems in 1569 in Holland. And Dirk was a Mennonite. This was bad news, to be a Mennonite in the year 1569 in Holland. And so he was being pursued by his captor, who was going to kill him. Because to be a Mennonite in 1569 in Holland was to be called a heretic. And they burnt people who were heretics in Holland in 1569. Dirk is running. His pursuer is directly behind him, and they run across a lake that's frozen. And then Dirk hears behind him the crack and the splash of water, and he turns behind, and what does he see? His captor is sinking in the frozen lake. Now what would you do? You all would run. That's what you would do. You would run because you don't want to get burnt at a stake. Because that's maybe the only thing worse than freezing in a frozen lake. But this is a true story. Guess what Dirk Willems, the Mennonite, did? He went back. And he freed his own pursuer, who rolled over, frozen, and slapped the handcuffs right around Dirk's wrists. Within days, Dirk was taken to a jail... And then after he was charged as a heretic, Dirk was wheeled out into the town square, and Dirk was burnt. 
and he died. So the question remains, how do we decide what the right thing is to do, especially when we can get off easy? So again, I'll start with the question, or I'll end rather with the question I started with. Do you always want to do the easy thing in life, or do you sometimes want to do the hard thing? I have another story, but I think I'll spare you. It's a, it's a, it's a thought experiment of Robert Nozick's, but I'll save that for another time. So that's your story for this morning. And we're not going to sing the kids out to their classrooms. We're going to just sing to bless our congregation and also to bless our families joining us online. Thank you. like to invite everyone to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. I've said it for years, but I'll say it again. I think to pray right, you have to pray with your whole body. So I encourage you to put both feet flatly on the ground. If it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed, now's a good time to close them. And as we journey into silence together, take a moment Become aware of your beating heart, your lungs that bring you air, the warmth perhaps of a friend right by your side. Let us pray. Holy, loving life, we watch in helpless anguish a smoldering conflict in distant lands flares into bloodshed. There seems to be so little we can do except to pray for understanding, tolerance, and forgiveness among the angry, weary people whose lives have been so battered by forces that seem to be beyond control. We watch as hopes for new beginnings in many different places seem tossed about like a ship in a stormy sea. There are those much closer to us whose fear and pain seem overwhelming. Holy love of harvest plenty, hear now our prayers for those who do not have enough, enough protection from violence and hunger and disease, enough hope to start again. And we raise our thoughts and prayers up aloud and in the silence of our hearts, and let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them, in silence together now.
Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 95 in the gray hymnal, There Is More Love Somewhere. There is a special offering today for a new group in Wausau that is helping the Afghan refugees. And it is our community-focused collection for today. To tell us about it will be Gwendolyn Paul, 
who is going to come up here and explain it to you in more detail, and you will also find information about it in the yellow pages um, inside the order of service. Gwendolyn? And the name of this group is New Beginnings. Thank you very much for having me today. Um, like she mentioned, my name is Gwen Paul, and I am the Executive Director of New Beginnings for Refugees, a newly formed local community-based nonprofit for welcoming and caring for refugees. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to welcome these new neighbors into our community. At New Beginnings, we are excited for the new opportunities this will bring for families arriving, as well as for central Wisconsin community. Personally, I know the richness that can come from these cultural exchanges. In the eight years that I was away from Wausau, I have had the privilege of befriending, helping, and working alongside Congolese refugees in Pennsylvania, as well as the Democratic Republic of Congo, before returning to my home here in Wausau. I'm so excited our community will have a chance to experience this richness as well. New Beginnings will be partnering with the agency ECDC to establish a strategic plan and process for welcoming refugees to the Wausau area. According to the plan set forth by the State Department, this number looks like approximately 100 refugees in our first year and more in the years to come. It is likely that a large percentage of these refugees will be Afghan allies, but also other refugees from other areas will be welcomed as part of this process. Our goal is to assist refugees and the community to make them feel welcome, like they belong, and help them to be successful and productive in their quest to make a new life in our community. It is our ambition to understand the needs and to help mobilize enthusiastic individuals and groups who can make a real difference. The refugees coming to Wausau will have needs for community integration, social connections, English language practice, transportation, and so many things that we just haven't even thought of. Local volunteers will be needed to welcome and engage our new neighbors in a variety of roles, working in tandem with the local resettlement agency. We believe in the power of education and dialogue to bridge critical gaps that form between various cultures, ethnicities, political perspectives, and faiths. We intend to foster dynamic opportunities to learn and expand perspectives on many topics relating to refugees and the geopolitical circumstances from which they come by encouraging respectful discourse and celebrating Wausau's multi-ethnic traditions. As we prepare to welcome well, we are actively seeking and organizing material donations like home furnishings, linens, household supplies, paper products, cleaning items, 
Um, also bicycles to help make transportation more accessible. Material gifts are now being accepted at Whitewater Music Hall on Saturdays from 9 to noon at our donation drop-off site. We also continue to build strong financial partners in our community to sustain ongoing and future services. All of these gifts are being managed by the Community Foundation. All this early effort will really allow us to be well prepared as a community. Thank you very much for inviting me in. I'm honored to be able to share about how we can all come together and love our new neighbors. Thank you. If you'd like to give a gift to New Beginnings today, there's a basket in the back of the sanctuary that you can drop uh, some money into if you'd like, or otherwise you can stop by the church's website, and we have a giving um, selection there, and you can just drop down the box and designate the community focus collection, and 100% of what you give today will go to New Beginnings. So thank you in advance for your generosity. This... The reading for this morning is, comes from the book of Job, which is a wisdom book, if you were wondering. In the 38th chapter, beginning in the first verse, going until the 7th, and then skipping to the 34th, and lasting until the 41st. You all know what happens uh, before we get to this point in Job, or should I set it up? I'll set it up. Um, so, um, uh, Job uh, has the worst luck of anybody ever in the history of literature. Um, he is picked on, and he loses absolutely everything. And then, um, in the midst of losing everything, his, fr his friends and his wife decide to show up and rain excessively on this poor guy's parade and tell him that basically what he did is his fault. Um, at the end, or towards the end of the book, God shows up into the story, and God 
sort of sets the record straight in a really unusual way. And I'll preach about that a little more. So this is the point after all of the drama has happened and now God has showed up in the story to set the record straight. Here's a reading. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Who is this, God says, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning so that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Or who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Therein ends our reading.
So on November 16th, 2011, my wife and I woke at dawn. We packed a couple of day bags and headed out of our tiny St. Louis apartment. And through the morning darkness, we drove to the hospital. My wife, her name's Sarah, if you don't know, Sarah checked in and was wheeled back to this rather nicely, nicely furnished delivery room. And I, of course, followed behind carrying the day bags. My always clever wife, she packed her bag with a fresh change of clothes and our baby's first outfit. I stupidly packed mine with a laptop. Like an idiot, I had this assumption in my mind that when my wife went into labor, I could finish this overdue paper on Madame Bovary for this lit class. I was trying really, really hard to get a gentleman's C in. Needless to say, I didn't write a sentence as our parents and our siblings checked in on us. I would estimate every 13 seconds. And then in between all those visitors, my wife and I, we would attempt to do the pre-delivery exercises. Instructions. If you all have ever been in a delivery room lately, you know that the instructions are printed on these laminated poster boards, and there are these expressionless cartoons. And they're bouncing on balls, or they're squatting like sumo wrestlers. And in one picture, there's a picture of, of a person sort of slumped over the side of their bed, with their booty up in the air, and then the other emotionless cartoon is sort of giving them a massage or performing a cavity search. I couldn't really tell what they were doing, but we tried it nevertheless. And so after 14 hours of labor, my wife, she decided, she said that we are going to have a birthday party whether our kid wants to or not. And so once again, Sarah was wheeled with me following behind in the day bags and my still unfinished lit paper into another room. And this one was a little bit more sterile. There were no posters of cartoon people doing cavity searches. There were only cabinets and sinks and an operating room, right, or operating table rather, right in the center of the room. And then people started to flow in with masks and gowns and gloves. You've been in the hospital before. And moments later, I watched a doctor perform a procedure that probably looks as terrifying today as it did when it was first performed in the seventh century. I tried to comfort myself by thinking how cool it was that my kid was about to come into the world just like Julius Caesar, but this didn't help me at all. I soon became terrified. But then behind this tiny flap of fabric that hid absolutely nothing I wasn't supposed to see, like a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat, the doctor lifted my daughter into the air. And she said, happy birthday, Eleanor. And seconds later, the room filled with the sound of a child using her voice for the first time. And so a nurse wiped my daughter down. She did a couple of medical things, whatever that was. And then she wrapped Eleanor in a, bl in a blanket and she handed her directly to me. You see, up to this point, my whole life, I had dreamed of fathering a child. And there she was, right in my arms. And so I kissed her, and I smelled her head, and I had never smelled anything like that before. And still to this day, I think it is the best smell on the planet, and there's not even a name for it aside from calling it what it is, the smell of a baby's head. And there's something about that moment, the smell of my daughter's head, that's totally untranslatable. After all, how do you quantify how much you love the smell of your baby's head? I don't think you can. You can't because there are parts of life 
that are just untranslatable. And so when Roman doctors started delivering babies by cesarean section, Jews at that same time started writing down oral tales like the book of Job. Now get this, scholars don't even know if the book of Job is a Jewish tale at all because its characters don't even have Jewish names. And even the setting in the land of Uz is confusing because nobody has the foggiest idea where Uz was. And God is weirder than God's usual weird self in Job. And God colludes with Satan who acts sort of like a deranged FBI interrogator. And Satan convinces uh, God to let Satan inflict pain and suffering on poor Job to see if faith is possible when people don't get what they want. And so then what happens? Job loses everything. He loses his livelihood. Ten kids, they all die. He loses his home. He loses his health. And then once FBI agent Satan takes everything, he decides, I'm going to go ahead and cover Job's body with boils just for kicks. And so it's at this moment that Job's four buddies and his wife show up. And all of them are nice at first, but once they get past the get well soon part of the visit, they start to question whether Job's bad luck is Job's fault. And we do this too, lest you feel superior. We're all guilty of asking cancer patients whether they smoked or liver patients, whether they drank or COVID patients, whether they vaxxed. And what do Job's friends say? They say, repent and tell God you're a big idiot, and then all will be well. That's what they tell him to do. But Job hasn't done anything wrong. Nobody gets the confession they want. In fact, Job is a model citizen. The story tells us this from the outset. He's a good dad. He's a great husband. He gives heaps and heaps and mountains of money to the poor. He turns his annual church pledge in on time, ladies and gentlemen. He clothes the naked, he helps the sick, and he actually shows up to church on Sundays. This is a good man, let me tell you. And I bet if you ask anyone a story from the Bible that they know, I bet that they would tell you they know the story of Job. And I think people know the story of Job because it's not just good art, it's great art. What great art has the power to do it has, is that it has the power to read us. Let me tell you what I mean. There are books and paintings and music so good, it's as though they read us. My personal catalog are albums like Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, or a book by Marilyn Robinson entitled Gilead. For me, these are examples of art that have the power to read. Job's a story that reads because it asks human questions. Will people believe in God, or will they believe in anything if they are not rewarded? And why should people be faithful to a God who allows the wicked to triumph and the innocent to suffer? Job reads us because its questions embody one of the common beliefs in modern thinking. And what are one of those modern beliefs? It's that there are no answers and only riddles. So the British writer P.L. Travers, she captured this mindset when she wrote, quote, For me, there are no answers, only questions, and I am grateful that the questions go on and on. What makes Job succeed is, in fact, the story's failure. So at the end, after Job and his friends argue whether you reap what you sow, if you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that you get what you give, God shows up. 
and God speaks and paints a poetic portrait of creation complete with eagles and lions and snow and fire and hail and monsters. And God's poem succeeds in that it fails to reduce life's strangeness. It doesn't answer mystery. Can you send forth lightning, it asks. Where were you when the earth's foundations were laid? Can you number the clouds? Did you create the elements that allows humans to breed the byproduct of trees? And this line of questioning isn't meant to belittle. If you recall, T.S. Eliot wrote that poetry is a raid on the inarticulate. God's response to Job's despair is a raid on what seems to us impossible to understand. The story's purpose is to show readers that all of us have a stake in the discussion about how to understand what William Brown called the ethos of the cosmos. The story is about life's meaning and purpose and ultimately our response. And this, of course, is supposed to be the question at the heart of every church, or at least it should be. And what's that question? What is the meaning and purpose of life? Unfortunately, though, many churches fail to help people live in a manner such that we would want no other life than the life we are living. All human life is filled with suffering and failures, but suffering and failure aren't blocks to a good life. The theologian Stanley Hauerwas said, quote, To have lived a good life is to have lived in a manner that testifies to our dependence on others and makes it possible the satisfaction that accompanies doing the right thing without regret or notice. Just think about the story we started with today in that quote. So what Hauerwas is getting at is a distinctly religious idea to live with humility and gratitude for life so fully that your living helps others be thankful for their lives. I'm going to read that again. To live with humility and gratitude for life so fully that your living helps others be thankful for their lives. Using this line of reasoning, we might say the purpose of life is to acknowledge our dependence on others and theirs on us. The trouble is, this message isn't a popular one. But just because it's unpopular doesn't make it false. So in Alastair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, he says that the conception of a whole human life is no longer available in our culture. He thinks it's no longer available because people don't see this as a loss. People don't see the loss of a meaning to life as a loss. They just think it's the way things are. In fact, he believes that people see this as freedom. In other words, people are fine to think there isn't a purpose to life because they see it as liberating. And it's seen as liberating because modern culture teaches that life is for freedom and happiness. That's today's narrative. Watch a commercial. It's important to note that for many people, freedom is understood as freedom from. Freedom from restriction. Freedom from limitation. Very little do you hear about freedom for. Freedom for a life of service. Freedom for deep relationships that demand much. The idea that life doesn't need an overall purpose is in fact a product of thought that comes out of a liberal narrative with two branches. And so let's note here that when I say liberalism, I'm using it in the classical sense, as a political and social philosophy that promotes individual rights and civil liberties and free enterprise. 
And so one branch of this tree is the liberal left, primarily understood as the attempt to free people of past oppressions. And this is contrasted with the liberalism of the right, which focuses on economic and political policy within a capitalistic framework. Now, both of these things have differences, but they share a common project to increase personal freedom. The trouble with this, as many warn, is that when our lives are shaped by narratives like this, it makes it next to impossible for any of us to be happy with the lives we've lived. We live in a society that cannot be satisfied because we no longer have the resources to live lives of virtue. And so the argument goes, we choose instead to live lives we don't even understand. Lives with endless consumption. Lives spent staring at screens. Lives in which we're scared of our neighbors without ever having spent a moment with them. Lives where we're scared of black people because we've been programmed to think that all black people are dangerous. And so rather than face tough truths, Americans and other advanced Western nations, what they do is they sacralize hopes and dreams by saying we can manifest our hopes and dreams, which is partly true at best. But the other side of that is that human beings are limited creatures. The most American thing of all is resistance to limitation. I would argue that this is modernity's disease. It's a disease because it eats away the truth that all of us are limited. And so in response, rather than accept our limitation, we rebel. If you need evidence for our rebellion, I'm going to lay it out for you right now. So this summer, as the pandemic's grip led up, news stations started reporting on what some are calling America's, quote, epidemic of bad behavior. In other words, we just celebrated a summer of rebellion. There's the infamous Trader Joe's tirade. You can watch this on YouTube if you get bored later today. But anyways, there's the infamous Trader Joe's tirade where a North Hollywood woman blew a gasket after being asked to put on a mask. In fact, people started acting so terribly and behaving so badly with servers at one Cape Cod restaurant. Get this, the owners at this little Cape Cod restaurant, they shut down for two days and they told the public they are putting their clients in a timeout so they can think about their bad actions. Only in Cape Cod, I guess. Airlines, furthermore, you could read about this in the Wall Street Journal. This was covered on Saturday and Sunday. Airlines are reporting so many instances of passenger violence that union reps describe what's happening in the air, as one union rep wrote in the Wall Street Journal, quote, an epidemic of aggression and assault. You all might have read about this. One Southwest flight attendant had her two front teeth knocked out of her face by an angry passenger. Behavior like this, the argument goes, is a symptom of modernity's disease. These are acts of rebellion against limitation. And this mode of living is the opposite of virtue in that it has no claims to any moral standards. Can someone who knocks the two front teeth out of a flight stewardess actually claim that they have moral standards? Can adults who throw childish fits at grocery stores claim to have moral standards? Can evil diners claim to have moral standards? All this personal obsession with happiness and freedom resists nearly everything we know about how humans find true purpose and meaning. 
Ancient religions like Buddhism and Christianity, they both convey the importance of suffering and limitation in life. In fact, the book of Genesis opens with a story about humankind's predisposition for struggle, and Buddhism's Four Noble Truths speak to the nature of struggle as well. And it's important to note at this moment that not all suffering is helpful. Unchosen suffering is to be avoided. But chosen suffering, as the psychologist Paul Bloom writes, is a different story. A life well-lived is more than a life of pleasure and happiness. It involves, he writes, among other things, meaningful pursuits. And some forms of suffering involve struggle and difficulty are essential parts of achieving these higher goals and for living a complete and fulfilling life. That's what Paul Bloom wrote. That is what is at work in the book of Job, a warning that a life well-lived is one with meaningful pursuits. And everyone who has gone after something meaningful can attest to the difficulty involved. Take a marriage, for example, or try shadowing a schoolteacher or interview a social worker. What ultimately matters aren't happiness and comfort because happiness and comfort are temporary. What matters is meaning and helping others make meaning. But if there is no meaning to life and the only thing that matters is endless personal and economic freedom, then our future will look very much like our recent past. Dangerous political figures, dangerous political ideologies that tap into our vein of anger and resistance to limits, and you can find examples of this on both sides of the aisle. And so when God thunders back to Job, the only answer he gets is to consider creation, how majestic and terrifying and amazing it is, how life fits into an amazing system in which death leads to life. And some people, they just want easy answers. They want to just accept that Republicans know best or Democrats know best, that the universe is just swirling dust or that love is merely chemicals firing in your brain, or that evolution fully explains human life, or that truth is contingent. But what Job does is it cautions us to resist the allure of easy answers. So when Jan Martel's book, Life of Pi, has anybody ever read this book? You should, or you should reread it. So in Jan Martel's book, Life of Pi, there's a boy named Pi, and his family, they immigrate from their home in India to Canada. And so they sail aboard a Japanese vessel which sinks about four days at sea into the Pacific. And so Pai finds himself stranded for 227 days aboard a life raft with a Bengali tiger named Richard Parker. This sounds awful. So Richard Parker and Pai know how dangerous one another can be. Pai knows that the Bengali tigers are man-eaters who steal children from villages. And Richard Parker, the tiger, knows that humans can kill at will, often without warning. And so they're stuck together in this tiny raft, and all they do at first is they just stare at each other. But soon they realize that their only chance at survival rests in one another. The tiger needs the boy, and the boy needs the tiger. And toward the end of the book, Martel describes what went on in the boy's mind. This is a quote. He kept me from thinking too much about my family 
and my tragic circumstances. He pushed me to go on living, and I hated him for it. And yet at the same time, I was grateful, and I am grateful. It's the plain truth. Without Richard Parker, I wouldn't be alive today to tell you my story. And then after 227 days, the raft runs ashore and the tiger jumps off instantly and disappears into the forest. And so when one of the sunken ship's owners meets Pi to see if he can help him figure out where in the ocean this vessel sank, Pi tells the man about the tiger he shared a lifeboat with, the tiger who saved his life. Mr. Patel, the owner says, A tiger is an incredibly dangerous animal. How could you survive in a lifeboat with one? Come on, Mr. Patel. Your story is just too hard to believe. And in an exchange that could have come from Job, this is what Pi says. If you stumble at mere believability, what are you living for? Isn't love hard to believe? So don't bully me with your politeness, Pi says. Love is hard to believe, ask any lover. Life is hard to believe, ask any scientist. And God is hard to believe, ask any believer. We're just trying to be reasonable, the owner responds. So am I, says Pi. Just tell us what really happened, the owner comes back. And Pi ends the conversation like this. I know what you want. You want a story that's not going to surprise you. You want a story that's going to confirm what you already know, that won't make you see higher or further or differently. What you want is a flat story, an immobile story. You want a dry, yeastless factuality. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that if we become too obsessed with easy answers and happiness and comfort, How will we ever be taken in by something that takes us higher and further to a place different than we'd ever imagined? If what we really want is another story, do we really want love or life or God? The world is vaster than we're often willing to acknowledge. We box things in in pursuit of happiness and comfort. And life's most meaningful things are the result of immense effort some of which lead to joy and some of which lead to pain. And there are some things in life that you just can't translate. They just are. To kiss and hold a child for the first time. To feel yourself seen in the eyes of someone you love and admire. To live in a way that through you, others find thanksgiving for the life they're living. Every single one of these possibilities leave you exposed to the problem of pain but they also open up the possibility for you to see the world differently as a world charged with glory. Amen. You're welcome to rise in spirit or body now and join in singing our closing hymn number 1064 in the Teal Hymnal, Blue Boat Home.
that sets us free, and the hope that never dies, and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to have a seat and relax and enjoy the postlude. I'll be here to say hi to you as you leave the sanctuary. Thank you. 